From the environment to the refugee crisis, you can never ponder enough about what's happening in the world. Get your weekly dose of political news every Tuesday from 10 to 12 on Mooster FM 89.6. Hello, dear listeners. Today we are in our World Politics program, and here there are four of us. Ellen. Hello, dear listeners. Me, Anastasia, and I would like to welcome our new two guests in our Politics program, Adam. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And Pia. Hello. Hello, hello. And as I know, Ellen would like to start, and her topic is about one princess with a tragic story. Please. Tell us more about it. Thank you. I found this information last December, and it was a pity because I couldn't share with you. I didn't have a road politics programs, and uh, firstly, I was very happy about it, but then when I wanted to share, it was a pity. But uh, what happened, actually? It's um, a story how to be a princess and how to suffer being a princess. This girl, her name is uh, Latifa, daughter of Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum. Amazing name. Yeah, but he's the king of uh, Dubai. Now. Yes. He is the current ruler of uh, one of the richest uh, countries in the world. And she uh, was, uh, hopefully she is, uh, his daughter. And um, in December, uh, her video was published on the internet where she asked for help and uh, told her story, the story of her life. She's uh, very, very beautiful, I'd like to say, and she was not covered on the video. She was not like a Muslim woman, and she seems to be very wild. She didn't want uh, to live a life of a princess. She told that uh, in her family they have um, really a lot of children, and, uh, for example, even uh, with the name Latifa, she has uh, two siblings. So there are three in total, and she is the middle one. And uh, when she was born, she couldn't stay with her family, with her mother, because the sister of her dad uh, liked her, and she took her to her apartment, to her house. Honestly speaking, it's a palace. It's not uh, an apartment, a house, uh, how we imagine it. But um, she wasn't happy about it. And she could see her mother only once a year, and uh, even not stay for one night. So just to come, to see and go back and continue living with her aunt. And then when one of her brothers was born, he joined her. So he also lived not with his mother, with his family, but uh, with this aunt. And she said that uh, her mother did it on purpose because she didn't want uh, to leave her alone. At least they were two. It's better than to be alone. So she lived like this. And then... What happened? Uh, once uh, her sister, she has uh, a lot of sisters, and once uh, the older one went uh, to England and she escaped. Because um, in, uh, in Dubai, all life of uh, women, and especially royal women, are completely controlled. So they are not free to make choice, to make decisions, to change their lives. And uh, her sister didn't want to live like this. She went uh, for holidays to England, and then she managed to escape. She was... Uh, <laughs> escaping for about one month and there was a special operation how they caught her so like a security service of uh, Dubai was uh, in Great Britain checking her, chasing her and finally they succeeded 
they honestly speaking kidnapped her in the street and she was screaming kicking them but uh, she couldn't do anything so it wasn't with the support of Bri- uh, british government no it was absolutely independent because uh, dubai doesn't have really power responsibility to work like this what they did after that somehow they delivered her to france And from France, she had uh, a flight uh, back to Dubai by a private jet. So b- nobody controlled, nobody checked. And she didn't have her passport so anymore because they took every document. And after that, she was kept uh, in uh, Dubai. She couldn't uh, go away. She was kept in one room. And sometimes also when she escaped, she tried to contact um, British journalists. So this was a problem for her father as well. He didn't want to allow her to have this dialogue because she could share a lot. And we will know more after a short musical break. From the environment to the refugee crisis, you can never ponder enough about what's happening in the world. Get your weekly dose of political news every Tuesday from 10 to 12 on Mustar FM 89.6. Hello, here we are again in our World Politics program. And in the previous part, Ellen was telling us a story about the Dubai royal family and especially about the children from this family. And we would like to know more. Thank you. I will continue. This uh, sister of Latifa was uh, back home. She was uh, kept in a room, like in a cage. And uh, now, for example, last year, as um, Latifa described the situation about her sister, she's in the room with the psychiatric help with the nurses all the time. She never can be alone in the room. She doesn't have any kind of privacy. And it happened after they found that she had more than one cell phones. So they tried to provide like security of Sheikh. I'm just curious, how did this information became known? Because um, this girl, Latifa, I'm talking about, uh, this story of her sister was a big motivation for her to escape. So when she saw how it happened, this sister was elder. And um, then Latifa tried to escape as well. But she was so naive, she had no idea how the border looks like. She never was abroad. So she thought uh, it's just uh, a desert and you can go wherever you want. She didn't have any kind of documents like visa, foreign passport, nothing. And uh, she was kept uh, without any problems on the border. And uh, she was imprisoned after that. So she was imprisoned for more than three years, a daughter of the sheikh, as she described her story. So she was uh, in prison in Dubai and uh, they tortured her. Yes, uh, these guards uh, beat her and they said to her that uh, her father ordered to kill her. So they had all responsibility to do it. And it was like physically torture, but also mentally because uh, they uh, switched uh, off the light and she lived for a lot of days in complete dark. Or another day they put different very, very loud sounds and uh, she was uh, scared, of course. It continued for a long, at some point after one year, she uh, came back home for one week and she didn't find any kind of empathy from her mother, from her relatives, her family and she was very desperate about it because she expected that uh, they could uh, somehow support her at least uh, 
psychologically, but they didn't want. And uh, she came back to prison. And after more than uh, two years more, she was released. And uh, then uh, she lived uh, in one of palaces also. And uh, all the time she had a kind of uh, guards with her, her driver who should follow her everywhere and uh, tell where she went, what she did and so on. But uh, she didn't want to give up and uh, she started... Uh, skydiving. It became her really big hobby and she did it uh, with a team of international people because uh, not only local people, not so many of them are fond of it. And uh, there she met uh, one girl, Finnish one, and they became uh, after time friends. Also this girl was uh, a trainer of capoeira, so she started uh, taking classes and uh, time by time they became closer. Also she says that after prison she couldn't um, trust people at all because um, it was very difficult and also her family didn't want to support her, so how <laughs> could she trust anybody else? And she spent mostly time with animals, uh, with uh, horses, uh, monkeys, because also only this uh, kind of pets uh, could uh, somehow support her. And uh, she w she's not sure that even after all these years, she recovered uh, completely because uh, it was a big trauma. And uh, with uh, these international people, she found some friends and she found some way how to go to internet cafe in the mall and contact British journalists. She tried a lot, but not all her attempts were successful because it's very difficult to prove your identity. Just uh, can you imagine you're a journalist, you're sitting in the office and you have an email like, I'm a Princess Latifa, I need your help. And uh, for many people, it seems to be um, a trap because if you can... Um, trust or not. And also there was a story of a guy who escaped from Dubai before and uh, he succeeded. So she contacted him in order to organize her escape. And uh, firstly he didn't believe, but time by time uh, they became closer and he organized uh, a plan of escaping from Dubai. Thank you, Ellen. And we will know more about Latifa's life after a short musical break. From the environment to the refugee crisis, you can never ponder enough about what's happening in the world. Get your weekly dose of political news every Tuesday from 10 to 12. On Musta FM, 89.6. Welcome back, dear listeners, and finally we are going to the last part about Latifa's life, and we are curious to know more. I hope it's not final part, uh, but nobody knows for sure now. So, this guy who was British, who managed to escape from Dubai before, how he did it? He went uh, to Oman then uh, by boat to neutral water of Indian Ocean, and then to India. From India he had uh, a plane... Uh, UK. So it was more or less their plan. And in her case, uh, they decided to organize similar. So with her friend from Finland, uh, they met very early in the morning, but it was normal because usually they did it like this in order to go skydiving or some sport activities. So it was completely normal. But then they went by car to Oman and uh, from Oman there was a boat which was waiting for them. And um, it was uh, a yacht, not uh, a big boat, but this team took her and uh, they went to India. 
everything was perfect. She was very, very happy. Uh, some uh, people of the crew of this um, yacht uh, remembered her, how she managed. Also, she wrote to British journalists uh, from uh, the boat. So she contacted them and she kept them aware of her moving, how she feels and so on. And uh, when it was pretty close to India, they were sleeping, it was night, and they just heard some uh, shotguns and uh, the boat was attacked and uh, took under control of these people. And uh, these people who attacked uh, were not uh, Arabic, they were Indians. And um, the problem is that... Um, Now Dubai is one of the richest states uh, in the eastern. It's true. And uh, the sheikh uh, has a very good uh, image, uh, uh, but she said it's only PR, it's uh, only how he'd like to look uh, abroad. But uh, he did a lot uh, to build a good relationship with uh, a lot of countries, including India. So somehow they uh, organized uh, this support from India. So Indian... Um, security took uh, Latifa, her friend, Finnish girl. Uh, she, they said her to close her eyes uh, and she had uh, a gun close to her head. Uh, otherwise, they threatened to kill her. And uh, then she and also this guy, British, uh, who came on board, who escaped before without any problems, uh, they were questioned and uh, they were questioned as if uh, they kidnapped Latifa. It's what they said, and we don't know what uh, kind of information this Indian security took from uh, Dubai or whatever. After that, there is no more information about Latifa's life, and uh, this video was released after one week after her escaping and after her disappearing. Because, um, as she said on the video, it was uh, shot only for, like, emergency situation. She didn't uh, want to publish it just to share, because she hoped that from India she could go to the U.S., and uh, there she, uh, she would ask for asylum, and it will be okay. But things went wrong, and um, when a BBC journalist asked uh, a Dubai government, sheikh or whatever, to comment on this. They didn't uh, contact them, they didn't want, but there is an official kind of press release, kind of official information that uh, now Latifa is safe and is with her family. And this is uh, what is known. Who could else. believe in it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she was safe with her family in prison as well. Yes. She, so, and uh, on the video, she said that if you see this video, it means either... I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation because it shouldn't be published otherwise. It's very sad to hear it. Yeah, I mean, this situation is crazy because uh, at the same time, you know, that now Dubai is one of the best, uh, the most uh, <laughs> attractive destinations for tourists and uh, it's a rich uh, country and uh, a lot of people dream to live there or to work there. But at the same time, to be born there and not in a poor family, but in a royal family, it, it can be also a trap for you. Thank you, Ellen, for this amazing story. I hope... Of course, it's hardly to believe, but I hope she's okay and will be or will be okay. Yeah, at least her friends uh, promised uh, to try to help her also, also in future, at least to know her destiny. Thank you. And we are going to have a musical break, so stay with us. We are coming soon. From the environment to the refugee crisis, you can never ponder enough about what's happening in the world. 
get your weekly dose of political news every Tuesday from 10 to 12 on Muster FM 89.6. Welcome back, dear listeners. Here we are again, and now we are moving to the delicate topic with Pia. Yeah, hello. Um, now I want to talk about tampon tax in Italy. Usually I'm not that interested in, like, politics, but this topic was pretty close to me, so I want to talk about this. So on December 30, at quarter to 5 p.m., Italian government signed the 2019 budget law, which is an accounting document which will contain the incomes, the public expenditure and the funding to face these costs during this new year. Of course, one way to take care of countries' expenses is to tax consumer goods. So here is the VAT, which is the value-added tax. Uh, in Italy, there are three different levels of VAT rates. The Minimum rate is 4% and it regards essential goods such as bread or flour or pasta, fresh milk and rice, newspapers, books, glasses, like braces and dental fittings. The next tax rate is the reduced rate at 10% for tourist services like hotels, cafes, restaurants, then medical products, particular alimentary products, for example meat and yogurt, and gas and electricity. Then there is the ordinary rate, which is the highest one, 22% of tax rate. And it concerns uh, furnitures, clothes, bottled water, spa treatments, informatic equipments, and all the hygiene products. And here comes the problem. It is precisely around this last category that in these days in Italy, a media storm has been mobilized. Besides toilet paper, among hygienic products, there are in fact also absorbents, thin layers of cotton that allow us women to be able to live tranquility, our femininity all around the world and disturb them. Some members in 2016 proposed a law to reduce the VAT to basic necessities for women, in particular absorbents, tampons and menstrual sponges from 22 to 4% as they reduced taxation applied to the essential goods, but it did not succeed. We tried again this year. Uh, the requests were proposed and not accepted even in this last budget law. So the women of the association on the Rosa, which translation is Pink Waves, to decry stop tampon tax period is not a luxury, have relaunched a petition because the period tax is reduced to the minimum rate, so from 22% to the 4%. So to be considered goods of first necessity, since the purchase of absorbents is not a choice, just as it is not to have menstruation from 2 to 10 days a month for a period that can last even more than 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good question. I've never thought about this from this side. I mean, I just have my woman stuff, so I need something <laughs> to buy and it's okay. Yeah. But uh, I don't know any situation about this in Russia. I think we don't have this kind of stuff. I mean, we don't have this uh, question that we would like to make uh, in the law or something. Ellen would like to say something? We are just very happy that we have uh, tampons in general because even... Uh, when my mom was like uh, 
15, 20, and she lived in the USSR. They didn't have any kind of normal feminine hygiene. They had, you know, I mean, they did it uh, themselves, so it was handmade kind of feminine hygiene, and it's not really cool. Yeah, exactly. That's why I think it's pretty important to Italian girls, at least, uh, to make these things cheaper, because it's not that expensive, okay? It's kind of affordable, but still, it would be better to be cheaper, even because they changed the tax rate on truffle from 22% to 5%. It should be, like, more expensive. Come on, temp absorbance should be cheaper than truffles. <laughs> so like <laughs> you said, I don't know. Yeah, like, they, yeah I saw a priority. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, they made this this example, and yeah, you said a good thing that it's not our choice. So yes. yeah, exactly. And even because even this um, thing mm-hmm. buying absorbents and tampons, it's not just a girly thing because it afflicts the whole family. Because you know you have to buy them, so it's a cost for the whole family, yes. not just for the single girl. Oh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, thank you, Pia. We will know more. We will go deeply with this topic after a short musical break. Stay with us. From the environment to the refugee crisis, you can never ponder enough about what's happening in the world. Get your weekly dose of political news every Tuesday from 10 to 12. On Muster FM, 89.6. Hello, hello, again, the World Politics Program, and (laughs) we were discussing the very interesting topic with Pia, tampon tax, and (laughs) tell us more about this, Okay, so, as I told you um, before, this association, uh, Onde Rosa, uh, made a petition about the abolition of tampon tax, at least to reduce it from 22% to 4%. And um, I was checking their Facebook page, and one of the first things that popped out was a video about a social experiment that they made where they asked seven guys of different ages questions about period just to let people aware of the knowledge that on average men have about this topic and they made uh, questions such as how long does the period take to finish or um, again how much does a woman spend monthly on tampons and stuff like that it was kind of interesting so their reactions because they were even a bit embarrassed talking about this topic and at the end of the video they had a present and it was absorbent (laughs) yeah and it was pretty nice to see the video and yeah I was mm, looking on the Facebook page and another interesting post uh, uh, was saying that having the period is not a luxury or not a choice and the tampons are not a necessary but a necessity for every woman. I want to be (laughs) clear to this part because it it is what it is. So It's, It's kind of true. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, can I say something? <laughs> oh, sure! <laughs> no, <you would> like. <laughs> I'm sorry, Pia, but uh, okay, I agree. Period is not a choice. Yeah, thank you. But the tampon is a choice. Yeah. Okay, but we have another stuff. Yeah, there is, for example, Cup. I heard about plastic cup that you just buy one and you can use it for 10 years and which is, is gathering blood and you're just taking it out pouring blood away and stick it inside again yeah it's true so i'm the man so i never experienced it but theoretically i would say it's much better option so i would rather not to fight against the tax but maybe change the way of dealing with period 
Yeah, you know, I heard about this uh, plastic cup, menstrual cup, only here in Hungary, because in Russia, this information was uh, completely, I don't know, hidden somewhere. Yeah, it's, I think you can't find this in, in shops. But the problem is that, okay, I have a lot of friends, girls. Uh, some of them are very, you know, like in fashion and uh, stylish. And nobody never told me about it. So it's a new equipment. And uh, I read a lot. Honestly speaking, I'd like to have it. Because it's cheaper, it's true, but uh, it's not um, clear if it's safer so far. I mean, I believe it is, because uh, also the same was uh, attitude about uh, tampons uh, when they appeared. But at the same time, in order to have it, you should go to the gynecologist, because they're different and they have different diameter, and you should know which one is yours. And it opens another interesting topic in Russia, because... Unfortunately, we have a problem with this kind of doctors, and uh, for most of women, it's a big stress uh, to meet them. I don't know about yeah, Russia, but in Poland, every woman is going to gynecologist once for a while, so it's not extra effort. But and also speaking of the hygiene of it, you're dealing with it, uh, dipping it into boiling water, and that's enough. Yes, yes, uh, I heard about this, but I think that uh, the problem is that all mostly doctors are not so open-minded. So when you come and ask, can you please tell me my diameter in order to buy this equipment, they would say, no, you shouldn't do it, uh, it's not a good decision because uh, the experiments are not completed and so on. I mean, change the doctor then, yeah, really. Change no, the city, change the country, <laughs> yes. I have another problem that I would be dealing with using a plastic cup. Okay, it's fine. It's cheaper and it's even better for the environment, everything. You're right. But try and think you can really use it everywhere. Like, okay, when you're home, it's fine. You can change yourself and it's fine. But try and think if you're outside somewhere and you have to clean up after yourself. Okay, how? Um, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> shopping malls, train stations, so toilets are okay, everywhere okay. in the cities. Fine. It's fine that you discuss it with Adam. <laughs> when you're... Yeah, but I think we have something to say about this topic after a short musical okay. break. Stay with us. From the environment to the refugee crisis, you can never ponder enough about what's happening in the world. Get your weekly dose of political news every Tuesday from 10 to 12 on Mustard FM 89.6. Welcome back to our world political program, and now it's a very, very interesting topic about tampon, menstrual, and other stuff. And we had a little fight between Adam and Pio. Please continue, guys. <laughs> so you said it's uh, hard to change when you're somewhere in public, outside the home. And I would say toilets are almost everywhere. That's true. But you said that you should boil in hot water in order to be sure that you won't hurt yourself. Okay? Yeah. but Yeah, so you can really boil something wherever you yeah, are. Yeah, but think before. Prepare it when you're at home. For example, after period, you boil it, clean it, and you have it prepared. And then you can bring it everywhere with you. 
No, but she means when you need to change it, like yeah. uh, to empty it. You know that it's uh, filled and at some point you should empty it. Yes. And it's very difficult to do in the public toilet. Exactly. Where <laughs> the sink is uh, in a common space. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be disgusting. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, Come on. No. Okay, you can pour it into the toilet, in the cabin. And no one you will need see. to clean it. Um, ha. Okay, you can buy <laughs> wet uh, wet wipes. Also, uh, disinfectant gel, disinfect gel, and you put it after in your vagina. Sorry, I mean, this all this it's stuff? it's based. This gel is based on alcohol, which evaporates <gasps> quickly. So you just wait a little bit; it evaporates, left the cup dry. Just think about it. During one week, that for example, women have uh, her period, she puts an alcoholic stuff inside of her body, yeah, and I'm, it's not good. I'm saying you're not putting any alcoholic stuff inside ah, your body. Okay, so. The alcohol evaporates. Yeah, yeah, okay. And there's no more alcohol on the cup. It's uh, very how to say. Cheaper, better, modern, and nice. <laughs> 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 no. <laughs> Okay, I, I I can I can feel your point of view, but since you're not a girl, you can't have voice in this. Okay, no, 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 no. I, I cannot deal with this argument. I don't know. Just try to to feel us. If we are saying that maybe it's it's not better, but it's cozier, like using tampons and absorbents. Trust us. I've never used a plastic cup, so yeah. I'm not. I'm just wondering uh, how it would be like to yeah, use me it. Too, me the too. problems and the Pro and cons. Also, yeah, I heard about it here in Hungary, and it's a problem to go to a gynecologist here because can you imagine whom I should take with me, which kind of my coordinator, mentor? <laughs> also, I had a lot of them, and they would translate, so it's crazy. Yeah. But I think in Russia I will do it, and also maybe I don't uh, think that you, you can buy it uh, like in a shop. Uh, I think only on the internet. In Russia, you mean? Yep. But buy it here. But I don't know my diameter. Oh my god. Okay, this is another question, but I think yes, by the internet you can buy it. Yeah. Anyway, it's very uncomfortable uh, period during the months, so please let us have a choice. <laughs> of course, yeah. Of course. But this it's, it's not a problem that only afflicts Italy. So don't worry Italian listeners, <laughs> okay? We're not alone. <laughs> In fact, there are some European countries where the tax on this product are even higher. Do you want to try and guess which oh countries? USA. No, <laughs> European countries. North. N- ah. Northern. Europe. Norway. Norway. Sweden and Denmark. Okay. They have... I, I didn't expect them to... <laughs> yeah, that's true. But still, I don't know. In fact, they, the tax rate on these products uh, is 25%. It's disappointing, I know, but not as much as being Hungarian and knowing that here is even worse. Wow. <laughs> Guys, in Hungary, tampon tax rate is 27%. <laughs> and I can feel it with my budget. <laughs> yeah, even me. <laughs> so you spent all your money for this. <laughs> yeah, now you know where my money are. <laughs> So yes, speaking as Italian citizen, we might not be the worst, but we should follow the lead of Spain, for example, which from 2019, female hygienical products will pass from 10 to 4%. And same happened uh, in England, where in 2015, the tax rate passed from 20 to 5%. Thank you, Pia, for this information. I will think about it later. 
and we would like to go for a musical break. Stay with us. From the environment to the refugee crisis, you can never ponder enough about what's happening in the world. Get your weekly dose of political news every Tuesday from 10 to 12 on Mustar FM 89.6. Hello again, dear listeners, and now we are moving to our main speaker, Adam, mm. and Hello. I know, yes, your topic is about personal data. Yes, it is. I would like to say a few words about personal information, focusing on these little rectangles, which are used by almost everyone nowadays. Personal information is a petroleum of 21st century, resource worth billions for those who can extract and process it we can read in New York Times. Journalists of it revealed that Facebook was delivering to the other technology companies more data about its users than admitted. Some of Facebook's partners could even look into users' messages. Sticking to the metaphor about personal information, incorrectly set up smartphone can be a pump, pumping up a petroleum to the raffinery. Smartphone users have to defend themselves not only against the villains of the internet, but also against advertisers and service providers who would take advantage of our data with pleasure, asking here and there for voluntary sharing information. Cell phone became common invention. Only in the third quarter of the 2018, people bought 352 millions smartphone worldwide, tells the IDC company. Mostly these devices are made by Samsung, Huawei and Apple. Smartphones make our lives easier, but they can be spies as well. In many situations, we even help them to spy on us. Unfortunately, configuration of a smartphone the way it would gather only necessary information requires a lot of effort. If anyone really value his own privacy, shouldn't use a smartphone at all. The user is observed in many ways. By many companies, by an operator of infrastructure for mobile telephony, by the devices producer, by the operating system, and finally by the applications. Tells us one of the creators of the Polish webpage, niebezpiecznik.pl, who wants to stay anonymous. It is a web portal, but also a company who is trying to hack servers of another companies, trying to look for the errors in their defense before real hacker will do that. The biggest eyes on our personal information have the advertisers. No one is watching users to find out about an intimate details of their lives because no one is interested in some random person. But to earn as many as possible money on the advertisements which are directed to that person. Profiled advertisements are better and more valuable. Well, it is necessary to gather information about users. Explain an expert from niebezpiecznik.pl Potentates on the internet advertising market are two companies, Google and Facebook. Group M Agency, leader of the media group which belongs to WPP company, calculated that in 2017 about 
84% of the global advertising money ended up in Facebook and Google. Chinese market wasn't calculated, which is ruled by its own rules. Smartphone itself doesn't collect a lot information about its user. Operation systems, applications, and intelligent assistants who are making calendars, planning the time, and searching for information do that. For the corporations, it can be extremely important because thanks to these applications, they can create a profile and pick the optimal offer for the user, tells Dr. Artur Modliński, lecturer of the university in Łódź, who specializes in researching AI software. Of course, it doesn't work the way that some employee is sitting next to his desk and looking at information from our calendars, check the restaurant in which we have been, or write down what we are looking for in our browser. Special algorithms and AI programs are fed with our data, whose role is to improve applications we are using. In fact, it can be even a good thing for us users, because the services with which we are provided are getting better, explain Anna Rimsha, journalist of the dobreprogramy.pl webpage. Wow, thank you, Adam, and uh, we will know more about this after a short musical break. Stay with us. From the environment to the refugee crisis, you can never ponder enough about what's happening in the world. Get your weekly dose of political news every Tuesday from 10 to 12 on Muster FM. 89.6 Welcome back dear listeners. Ellen said to me just introduce Adam. So Adam, <laughs> yes. Please uh, continue with your interesting topic about personal data about protection and how companies can steal our information. So I was speaking about sharing information through our smartphones and we are just sharing with the details of our lives for the better comfort. Speaking of the applications, these are thousands of them waiting to be downloaded for free in the application stores. We are not paying with the money, but with information, the petroleum of the 21st century. It applies to the emails, navigation, social media, and almost everything else. We should always check the requirements of the applications, which we want to install. If a flashlight application requires access to the text messages, we should be alarmed. An application like that can be controlled by cyber criminals, and the best way would be to stop the installation, advises Kamil Satkowski, danger analyst from Asset Company. It is necessary to configurate new device or to check already used one. You need to stay focused while doing that because applications producers count on our rush, pushing allow button to let the application be installed on our smartphone as fast as possible. You have to dig deep into smartphone settings to carefully check if you don't allow some applications to do something which can be dangerous or just unnecessary. It is a complicated process, but the smartphone is a complex tool itself. If you don't want to give Google or other company information about your localization, they won't receive it through their applications. But they can get this information through a completely different application, tells Anne Narimsha. The solution is to check settings of every application and personalize them. Good habits can be useful too, such as reading the description of an application, 
comments of other users, regulations, even if it sounds incredibly boring. It is good to check all the corners of the smartphone, lock it with a fingerprint or complicated password, and don't use it in a places full of cameras. Don't download software from unknown sources or to log into the applications through social media. While entering an application store, it's good to switch on alertness, which is literally worth a dime. In the moment in history where cyber attacks are taking place every day, on the market there are no winners and losers. On the smartphone market, dominate Google, owner of the Android operating system, which can be found in Samsung, LG or Huawei devices, and Apple, with iOS system in iPhones. Applications who prey on our data exist, of course, in both systems. App Store came to life in 2008, and at the beginning it had only about 500 applications. Nowadays, you can find there more than 2 million. If you are Android user, you can download applications from Google Play, in which there are even more applications. Programmers are checking all the applications, before they will become available in the store, for the hidden dangerous code, but some of them can get through. Hackers are making applications who are taking control over the smartphone's camera, thanks to which they can spy on the user and his surrounding and only warning signal will be warmer smartphone than usually, or software which can send them information about what we are typing while logging to a bank, for example. At the end of the last year's November, 22 applications were removed from Google Play, which contained viruses, and these applications were downloaded 2 million times before they were removed. The virus was working in the background, wheedle money from advertisers and stealing personal information. Users ended up with destabilized system and weak battery. One of these applications was Innocent Sparkle Flashlight. Thank you, Adam. Adam just given us the information how our phones can be spying. I hope you will tell us more about short musical break. Stay with us. From the environment to the refugee crisis, you can never ponder enough about what's happening in the world. Get your weekly dose of political news every Tuesday from 10 to 12 on Musta FM 89.6. Welcome back, dear listeners. In the previous part, Adam was telling us how to protect your phone from the stealing your data. And I know that you have something to say more about it. Yeah, I was saying about uh, Google Play Store, in which you can find applications with viruses, but also in the Apple Store. For example, in last year, you could find a food calories detector application, which creators were asking users to make pictures of their food and then to hold their finger on the Touch ID button for a confirmation. In some moment, on the screen popped up a message that would ask you to pay more than 100 euros. This application was removed at the end of the last year. The safest way is to keep your operating system clean. Never give your phone to the small kid. 
The biggest amount of viruses is inside games because hackers know that the baby is weak and if it wants to play a game, it will simply install it no matter what, warns Mariusz Gąsiorek Tatarski, co-worker from Samsung Electronics Poland. There is only one way to stop our devices from sharing personal information about us outside. Turn them off. Detoxification like that will surely help everyone in this new year, at least from time to time. After all, it is not worth selling your soul, even for the blessed comfort. This is the best advice. I think as long as you have some electronic device, you can't protect your personal data. Yeah, that's It's impossible true. in this modern uh, world. I yep. don't know. I really agree with your point of view, like, it's dangerous, but still you can't live without them nowadays. We are completely surrounded by them. Maybe you're the first person that really don't use them that I ever met. No, no, no. You know Beatrice. Oh, God, it's she same? The same. No, yes. Really? Okay. And I wanted to comment on it because, okay. yes, it's not only... You are not the only one. Also, in our team, there is Bear who really? doesn't use the smartphone or whatever. And also, in Russia, I met a lot of people, mostly men, who tried to escape smartphones and uh, on purpose bought really old, cheap phones because their calls are safer with that kind of phones. But I don't know if you heard about the Snowden Of course, he lived in Russia. Yeah. In Russian airport, at least. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> because he revealed that all the smartphones were plugged in with the spy programs. Also, I can say that probably I was the victim of such uh, attack this summer because uh, at some point uh, it was a big attack on Facebook and uh, Google. On Facebook, a lot of people, including me, had a message that uh, we were attacked. And probably we are on the list of people who were attacked. And what happened? I bought my phone uh, last year, so it's pretty new. I mean, for me, it's new. It's less than one year so far. And uh, the battery was perfect. I could use it for the whole day with the calls, internet, whatever. And it was okay. At some point, my phone could uh, survive only for 30 minutes. I'm not joking. It was warm incredibly. And it was out of charge all the time. I was scared. I didn't understand what's going on. But I think it was a kind of such attack. If there are other applications working in the background, this application Yeah, but I couldn't see it. Uh, and yeah. uh, I think it was uh, Facebook and Google. Because also they gave me a message about it. And at some point, everything stopped. I didn't do anything, but uh, it uh, started working okay, like it was before. That's yeah. really strange. Yeah, crazy. but uh, speaking of the new smartphone, can you remove the battery from no, your smartphone? No, we can't. No, it's very difficult. Yeah, just take out the battery. No, no, no. no it's yeah, exactly, because it has to run all the time. Yeah, before it was different. You remember, we could remove yeah. even if we had smartphones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With this creepy talk. We are moving to We are moving to other political stuff with Anna. <laughs> But after a short musical break. Stay with us. From the environment to the refugee crisis, you can never ponder enough about what's happening in the world. Get your weekly dose of political news every Tuesday from 10 till 12. On Mooster FM, 89.6. Hello, dear listeners. Again, there is World Politics Program, and now this is the final part, and I'm going to speak 
about Armenian-Azerbaijan relations. And first, my question is, uh, do you know these countries, guys? Armenia and Azerbaijan. I know they exist. <laughs> yeah, <Wow. same> here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so you don't know anything. Okay. I know a lot. Yes, of course. You're from Russia. I'm from Russia and I've been to both of them. Yes, and you will share your experience. Of course, but only after you. Yes, uh, why I chose this topic? Um, first of all, because Armenia is uh, a part of my originality and uh, the second maybe because um, it's interesting for me to discover how could be strong the discrimination in the world. And um, yes, I'd like to speak about the relations between these two countries and they are neighbors. And uh, now at that moment, there are no diplomatic relations between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And also I'd like to say that um, these countries are near Turkey, Iran, uh, Georgia, So you can imagine where is it, I think, I hope. Yeah, but Azerbaijan is a little bit more lucky, lucky because uh, it has uh, the, the sea. Way the way to the sea, yes. Armenia is surrounded by other countries and has no way to the sea. So these countries has no relations because of mostly because of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Um, the neighboring nations had formal governmental relations between 1918 and 1921 during their brief independence from the collapsed Russian empires as the First Republic of Armenia and the Democratic Republic of Azerbaijan. This relation existed from the period after the Russian Revolution until they were occupied and annexed by the Soviet Union. Due the two wars waged by the countries in the past century, one from 1918 to 1921 and another from 1988 to 1984, the two have had strained relations. So what happened? The first conflict, uh, as I said, um, started from 1918 and it was about um, Nagorno Karabakh region and I want to mention that this region it was a part of Armenia and um, after this conflict it became a part of Azerbaijan but this part is not neighboring part of Azerbaijan so it's on the opposite side of Armenia so it's uh, quite strange that uh, it like became Kaliningrad in Russia yes yes it's true and uh, because of this this war has been going for 100 years and it's still very difficult to manage the relations between these two countries because during this 100 years mostly I'd like to be objective but it's difficult because as I can see during some internet searching or during some information that I I'm getting from other people and uh, I think mostly from Azerbaijan it comes this strong uh, hate from Azerbaijan people to Armenians and um, now there is in Azerbaijan a very strong uh, xenophobia Armenian xenophobia and uh, even it's not allowed for Armenians to come to Azerbaijan even if you were born in Russia and you have Russian passport, but you have Armenian family name, you can't enter. And 
is there was some moments um, in the previous year, no, not in the previous, in the 2017, when uh, some Russian people with Armenian family name were stuck in the airport of Azerbaijan and they spent there some hours or days without food, uh, without water, without ability to call to home because of this. So without any like normal reason to be stopped. And you can be stopped not uh, even if you have an Armenian surname, but also if you look uh, alike uh, Armenian. Armenian. Yes. Because uh, when I was in Azerbaijan... And we will know more about this and about your story after a short musical break. Stay with us. From the environment to the refugee crisis, you can never ponder enough about what's happening in the world. Get your weekly dose of political news every Tuesday from 10 to 12. On Muster FM 89.6. Here we are with um, the, our my topic about Armenia and Azerbaijan, and Ellen would um, like to tell us her. Yeah, I'd like just yes. to add uh, one uh, story Note. I faced with uh, when I was in Azerbaijan. Of course, I'm uh, I have a Slavic uh, appearance, I have Slavic surname, whatever, and uh, I met a girl. She was from um, Northern Ossetia. It's a part of Russia, but, uh, I mean, she had uh, black hair and uh, black eyes. And she said that she was a kind of questioned uh, if it's for sure she didn't have any kind of uh, Armenian origin, even if her surname was not Armenian at all, of course. So, yeah, she should uh, prove it. And they asked her, what is the... Uh, full name of your grandmother, yes, what yes. is full name of your grandfather, and so on. And then she was allowed to come. Yeah, it's true. Even like this um, government, not the government. Kind of security control. Security, yes. Uh, they try to go deeply in your story just to be sure that you're not from... <laughs> that you don't have the Armenian originality in the past. And uh, it goes, this xenophobia, Armenian xenophobia goes from the government from the educational materials uh, during the study in, uh, in the school. Uh, children get this education and get strong feeling that Armenians are enemies and they are a bad nation and the stuff like this. So this is very sad to realize it. And um, two years ago, I had uh, relations with uh, one guy. He, his father from Azerbaijan. And he has Azerbaijanian family name. And when I said to my uh, relatives from Armenia that uh, now I'm dating with this guy, he's partly from Azerbaijan, but he has been living in Moscow for all his life. And my Armenian uh, relatives said that, okay, it's your choice, but be careful, be sure that it's okay. So this uh, conflict goes between like everything even if it's not so uh, how to say even if we are discussing just Russian people with some originality from Azerbaijan or Armenia and uh, at that time I didn't think that it's so strong conflict uh, I was thinking that oh it's something not so 
deep and but uh, after that I started to find the information and uh, read about it and now uh, I was searching some just some Armenian videos in YouTube about Armenia about cultural and such things like this and there were a lot of comments from Azerbaijanian people with a lot of anger and without like any reason because these videos were about uh, some other stuff just some I don't know some cultural Armenian cultural and this is absolutely ridiculous to see how people mm, can hate other nation and that it it goes from the government and this is very sad I can say that in Russia we don't know how deep the conflict is uh, because it's not uh, on the surface we have never heard about it But when I came to Armenia first time, I found out that, yes, uh, this conflict exists and it's still uh, very active. But uh, when I came to Azerbaijan, it was even worse because in Armenia you can feel that people, uh, Armenian pe- people don't like Azerbaijanian mm, people yes. and um, it's a long story. But uh, in Azerbaijan, they really have classes at school. I met with a very nice guy. He was our guide and he was pretty educated, uh, polite, whatever. But he told us, being completely serious, that uh, like uh, Armenian people came to Nahichevan, this um, mm-hmm. city in Nagorno-Karabakh, and they killed pregnant women and so on. But I know that uh, this is a kind of um, political PR war. You know, we have the same or pretty the same, unfortunately, with Ukraine. Ukraine, yes, it's true. And we will know more about this after a short musical break. Stay with us. From the environment to the refugee crisis, you can never ponder enough about what's happening in the world. Get your weekly dose of political news every Tuesday from 10 to 12. On Musta FM, 89.6. Here we are again, and um, I'd like to continue with my topic about Armenian-Azerbaijan conflict. And um, I know that Ellen has some story about her friend yeah. with Armenian origins. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, for a long time it was common. I mean, the conflict has uh, pretty ancient roots, but at the same time, uh, for a long time, it was okay when Armenian people lived, lived in, in Azerbaijan. It was not in so active phase of the conflict. So my hairdresser in Rostov, he's Armenian, he's wonderful, amazing, I love him so much. And uh, uh, he's uh, from originally from Armenia. And his family lived for a long time in Baku, in uh, Azerbaijan capital city. But it was completely good. His mother had a good... Uh, position and a factory and um, it was a normal way of living but at some point when the conflict came to this active phase with Nagorno-Karabakh they started uh, having problems for example sometimes uh, some um, aggressive uh, Azerbaijanian woman uh, came to the factory and started threatening to her but um, mostly her colleagues helped her, supported her And uh, when uh, the conflict became really a kind of war conflict, it was incredibly dangerous to stay. 
For example, some people uh, were so aggressive and so angry that they just uh, found a list of addresses where Armenian people live in Baku yes. and went uh, to these addresses in order to kill these people. And uh, their neighbors who were also Azerbaijanian people. So, I mean, it's not about nationality. It's about uh, social attitude or social craziness. They hid them in their apartment. So when these people came to kill them, it was empty. And then they moved uh, firstly to Armenia and then to Russia. When it was? It's about 20 years yes. ago, this conflict in Baku. Yes, yes. And before this time, you, you said correctly that a lot of Armenians lived there but after that and also they had the mixed uh, marriages it yes, was okay yes, yes. and I've read that uh, one guy during this um, period in Baku he was defined himself uh, as a yes as a Azerbaijanian but uh, when this conflict happened the people Azerbaijanian people came to his house and killed his mom because she was Armenian and uh, said to him uh, you need to uh, to say that you don't have any connection with Armenian so that you can live here but of course he couldn't do that so he he had to run away from this city and country but during this conflict uh, for sure a lot of Azerbaijanians helped to Armenians to run away as oh, you just uh, yes. gave him kind of home, home for, yes. for a time for a while to cover them yes and um, during this current time, um, Nagorno-Karabakh, it's a kind of independent republic. Yes, but mostly it's considered like Azerbaijanian. Yes, and um, for sure Armenian Armenians would like to, to get back this area because there are a lot of Armenians. And uh, we'll see what will happen, but I hope... Of course, it looks that it's impossible to manage this conflict... Because the people now who live in Azerbaijan, he has this strong propaganda against of Armenians. And of course, some Armenians uh, has these feelings to Azerbaijan. So I don't know, maybe in 100 years we can, we can say that it's done. I hope so. Yes, me too. And it's interesting that now in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is supposed to be Azerbaijan... Mm -hmm. There is a city which is called uh, Nahichvan, and uh, Nahichvan is an Armenian city which uh, was connected with Rostov, my city. Wow. So still Nahichvan is now not a city, but a part uh, Armenian quarter of Rostov. And uh, the same name has this part in Azerbaijanian territory. Wow, it's interesting. And also it's interesting that in Rostov you have a lot of Armenians. For me it was a discovery. So thank you for staying with us and I hope it was interesting for you. Uh, see you in the next program and goodbye and good luck. Goodbye. Thank you for staying with us. Join us again next week on Tuesday from 10 to 12 on Mushtar FM 89.6.